Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Steve Bannon says that Dr. Fauci will be hunted after the midterms. Well, we sure have one hell of a show for you. Vice President Kamala Harris joins us to talk about a host of issues. Then we have Andrew Ross Sorkin, who you of course know as the New York Times columnist and co-anchor of Squawk Box. But first... We have the host of Hell and High Water and the Circus on Showtime, The Recount's John Heileman. Welcome to Fast Politics, John. Hey, it's, uh, I like, you know, I didn't realize when I decided, Molly, that I, you had a new podcast and I was yes. excited to do it. I would do anything you ever asked, you know, oh, that, but um, but I thought Fast Politics, so this is going to be, if we're going to speak fast, we're going to cover a lot of ground fast. I didn't really get that. Oh yeah, it's actually also a, a thing related to Molly's name. <laughs> you guys are really clever, man. I like yeah. I, I, that. It took it tells you how stupid I am or how smart you are that it took me a little while to figure that out. I don't think anyone figured it out, but I actually think people should listen to it. I always listen to my podcast when I'm listening to podcasts on one and a half speed. So, oh my God, can you imagine like taking our conversational tempo and and amping it up to like one and a half? Do it. I mean, life is short. Why, you know, if you could listen to it in 30 versus 45, go for it. I'm all for it. So I want to talk to you about two weeks from the midterms. We're all going to die, right? Well, we yes, actually, we are all going to die. Gonna the die. only question, the question is when we're going to die. I would say that I have been told by my uh, one of my primary care physicians that I may be a space alien and, and may never die. But oh, good. other than me, other than yeah. me, you are all going to die. Excellent. I was hoping. I don't think we're going to die, though, necessarily in uh, in the calendar year 2022. Not all of us. But the narrative seems to be, I mean, and again, this is like the mainstream media narrative. Do with this what you will. Mm. All summer, Democrats are not going to have a red wave. Democrats are killing it. All of a sudden, September comes and the narrative totally shifts. We're in October. I've had, you know, three weeks of newsletters telling me that Democrats are going to get slaughtered and democracy is going to die. What happened? Well, I guess I first I'd say the narrative is always capital T, capital N. I always wonder, like, whose narrative is that? Um, I'm, there's some realities here. The first part 
which was, I mean, the first part was there was going to be a red wave. If you think about the period of time from the Virginia and New Jersey off year elections in November of last year to, I would say, the moment that the Supreme Court decided to strike down Roe and did the ruling in Dobbs. That was all Republicans were definitely going to be definitely going to have a red wave then. And then you had a summer where two things happened. One was the the backlash on on Roe slash Dobbs and and that energy that got unleashed with a lot of voters who care about choice and care about women's reproductive health and, and hate the Supreme Court for being so wildly politicized, which is something we could talk about in a more even more vivid form in the context of what uh, Ju- Justice Thomas did yesterday. But um and and the other thing that people ignored, I think, at what seemed to be their peril at the time and now seems to have really cost Democrats to some extent is, you know, there was a weird moment there in August where uh, the economy started to get better. And if you look at Joe Biden's approval rating and, and lay it down next to gas prices, you'll see an incredibly, incredibly consistent correlation. So, you know, the president's approval rating matters a lot in midterm elections because the House at least tends to kind of rise and fall with, you know, the national approval of the, the in party. And so the combination of that, what was going on on the on the abortion rights front and the fact that the economy seemed like it would, might be headed towards the soft landing that the Biden people had been predicting and inflation was starting to, to tick down and gas prices and food prices were ticking down, led to this surge of optimism in August into Labor Day that, you know, not the Democrats, I don't, I mean, I heard some liberal who were like, Democrats are going to, like, you know, there's going to be a blue wave. And I'm like, <laughs> you guys are out of your minds. But the possibility, you know, rose to one in four, you know, one in three. The Democrats might be able to hold the House, which is, you know, would be great odds against, against history. And people were very confident about the Senate when you saw, you know, double-digit leads for for uh, for John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. And it looked like John Warnock was going to have an easy time with Herschel Walker. And Gretchen Whitmer was up by double digits in the governor's race in, in Michigan. And then what happened was, Molly, what happened was right. what sometimes happens. The economic improvement turned out to be illusory. Gas prices started to rise again. Inflation started to go up again. People started like really bracing for a, a real recession. The Fed started hiking interest rates because inflation was, was out of control. And again, and they felt like they needed to uh, put the brakes on the economy, which made the, re- the recession talk even more pronounced. Everywhere I go in the country, which is a lot of places because of the circus, people who had stopped asking me, hey, where are you from and what are gas prices there? Which is things that you hear out on the campaign trail just among normal people. They right. started asking again um, in September, like, hey, where are you from and where are, what are the gas prices there? Our gas prices are back off the charts again. You know, that happened. And, and, and I think the question in, there's no doubt that the focus on reproductive rights which is a, a, clearly a super important issue and, and one that has potential political payoff. We saw a lot of these, you know, a lot of voter registration that seemed to be driven by Dobbs. You saw some data on that that had filled Democratic hearts with a lot of optimism. That didn't go away. And I think that's one of the questions right now, right? Are, is, are, is the polling picking up those new voters and or are we getting an overly dire picture? You know, as you sit here today, we're back to something more like what you'd expect in a midterm year in the House, at least, which is Republicans are probably going to take control of the House. That's always been and the margin is razor thin. There are more safe Republican seats. I mean, the math is just... Yes. The bottom line is like, it's just, it is, there's a reason historically that, you know, when a a new president comes in, and especially when the new president has control of the House and Senate, that the first year midterm is usually a referendum on that in-power party. And right now, there's not, nobody's going to really argue that just, forget about why or whether you think it's rightful or, or not, 
the, the country's not in a psyched place about its economy or its prospects, and people generally, you know, blame the president who's in, sitting in, in the Oval Office, fairly or unfairly. I, I always say, you know, presidents get more credit than they deserve when things are going great, and and they get more blame than they deserve when things aren't going great. But right now, we're the more blame than they deserve than when things are not going great. So, to, you know, people are, dis- are are unhappy with the state of the country, and they're going to blame it on Democrats. And so, given that the the margin in the House is so thin, you know, you can expect uh, Republicans to take control, but. Look, David Axelrod reminded me the other day that they lost 60 seats, net 60 net seats in 2010. We're not going to see that happen, I don't think, on on November 8th, but we're likely to see Republicans take control of the House, and then we can talk in more detail, and I'll shut up and let you ask another question. I think the Senate is exactly where I thought it would be. A bunch of really close races that could break, you know, we could end up with the Republicans with a one-seat majority, we could end up with the Democrats by a one-seat majority, but that's about it. We're not going to see, I don't think, we're not going to see suddenly Republicans have a four-seat majority in the Senate, or Democrats have a four-seat majority in the Senate. I don't think that's going to happen. We're going to end up with a really narrowly divided Senate again, no matter one way or the other, and obviously that matters a lot which way it goes, but that's, I think, where we're headed. So I, I was actually going to ask you about the Senate, because it seems like in August and September, we saw Fetterman had a huge lead. We saw Mandela Barnes had an enormous lead. You know, a September of Ron and on <laughs> flooding the Wisconsin airwaves with ads about how Republicans are tough on crime. I again, I have yet to see any Republican policy on crime or anything else. I mean, God forbid you know, Republicans make policy, but now all these races are super tight. Even Blake Masters in Arizona, I'm seeing polling. I would have said to you if you'd asked me in, in, in August whether I thought Mandela Barnes was going to win that race by double digits, I would have said, hey, Molly, um, can you tell me when the last time, other than Mandela Barnes as lieutenant governor, can you tell me the last time that Wisconsin's elected a statewide black candidate uh, in 100 years? You would have said, huh, I can't really think of one. I was said, this because there has never been one. You know, my father was from Wisconsin. I actually like Wisconsin a lot, but they don't have a great record in terms of racial diversity in that state. And it was always going to be an uphill push for, for Mandela Barnes, who's, who is very liberal on crime. And you're 100 percent right. Do Republicans have good crime policies? No, they're ridiculous. And is the crime problem as bad as they claim it is? No, of course it's not. But this is politics. And 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 a black liberal candidate in a, in a year where crime is, where Democrat, where Republicans have been successful in, in creating a lot of fear about crime and, and a lot of it misplaced and a lot of it distorted with the statistics, you know, that was a guy who was going to have a tough race. And Wisconsin's a purple state. It's not like, this is not a blue state. So, and beating, although I say the last thing, Beating an incumbent in, in the Senate is hard. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's, it's hard to do always, right? But incumbents are entrenched, even when they're odious, as Ron Johnson clearly is. When they're entrenched and they're well-funded, they're hard to beat. You need a really great candidate who's really well-funded and you need to get some breaks. And that's one place. I'll tell you another place where the crime issue is played, Molly, is, is uh, more than people understand is in the Fetterman race, where everybody's focused on his health. And I, I would say that's a reasonable thing. The guy had a stroke. I mean, you should be, we should wonder about whether about his health. I think that's a legitimate thing for voters to ask about. But politically, the the the, the you, you think about this. How bad is Dr. Oz as a candidate? He's so bad that in the course of the period from May to Labor Day, John Fetterman was essentially unable to campaign because he'd had a stroke. Right. Did not do almost any public events or or face-to-face interviews. And yet Oz was so bad that Fetterman, by basically campaigning from his basement and doing great stuff on digital, was able to open up that double-digit 12-point lead at one point, right? That's how bad, that's all about the Oz badness. And then $30 million in Republican ads in September, 
almost all of them on crime. John Fetterman, who ran the parole board, ran the pardon board, was like, has a record on crime that Republicans have been able to successfully, if again, I'd say unfairly, but successfully portray as too liberal and out of step with uh, with with the, the mainstream of Pennsylvania voters. $30 million Republican ads made that made that race. What I think now is, you know, Fetterman's up a little bit. Um, but it's not 12. And, and this debate tonight is huge. I mean, we never see anything like it, really, where the race has been closing for the reasons I just said, and no one knows what you're going to see tonight. And I, I don't say that with any prejudice against John Fetterman, who, who's a charismatic, compelling candidate, and, and certainly was both those things to a, to, a, to a huge degree before he suffered this unfortunate health incident. But a lot of people have a lot of questions, and you've never seen a candidate on stage who had to, has had to use closed captioning in a live debate. You've never seen a health issue that's been elevated in quite this way. I think his campaign's done a good job of managing expectations about it. They've done a really good job of, of kind of saying to Pennsylvanians, yeah, people have health incidents. You Like millions of you have had things that have happened to your health and he's recovering and he's working really hard to recover. And he understands you because he's gone through this. He understands you even more empathic than he was before. But it still is the case that, you know, in a very, in a very evenly divided state, you know, the swing vote, they want to see him get up on stage and, and feel comfortable and confident that he can do the job. And, you know, so if he clears that bar tonight, I think he could end the race, Fetterman, and he might. But other things could happen too. <laughs> so we'll wait and see. But in Georgia, right, we had Herschel Walker can't do sentences. I know. I know. <laughs> I've read commentary that says he won that debate. I'd say, you know, in the standard, again, this is one of these things, capital T, capital N for the narrative. There's also capital E expectations, capital G game. Herschel Walker can't do sentences is true. And I don't think he's qualified to be a United States senator. I don't think really? he's qualified to hold any public office. But, but again, in politics, you know, the guy who was expected to get up there and, and be a mumbling, bumbling fool and was coming off of all these, these supposedly devastating scandals, expectations were lowered naturally, not by anybody's effort. You have to spin that one. Like, you know, the expectations were as low as could be. And he cleared that bar. And, and I will say again, not to, not to upset maybe the likely listeners of the podcast, Raphael Warnock, who's a really smart guy, a really dignified man, a, a powerful orator, uh, obviously qualified to be a United States Senator and, and, and all of that, he still fucked up the simplest thing in the world, Molly, which is Senator Warnock, this was not literally the question, but the implied implicit in this question was Senator Warnock, you know, in 2020, you became a United States Senator largely because of Joe Biden and the, the, the stakes in that race between him and Donald Trump and the way that the Biden campaign rallied turnout in, in Georgia. You were able to get into the Senate in a runoff. You would say in a sense, oh, your political career to Joe Biden. If he runs again in 2024, you support him. That first part was the part that was implicit. The explicit part was if he runs in 2024, you're against him. There's only one answer to that question, Molly. The honest answer, the, the loyal answer, the Which true is yes. answer is it's up to Joe Biden to decide if he wants to run. But if he runs, of course, I'll support him. Right, right, right. And he couldn't say it. And he, it was like one of the great pieces of political malpractice I've seen in a while. Like, okay, well, you just answer that question. Be straight. Be a human being. Don't be an automaton. Don't be a guy with consultants in your head worried about what the ramifications are going to be of sticking with the guy who brung you. And then they turn to Herschel Walker and ask him the same question. Are you going to support Donald Trump uh, for if he runs in 2024? And Walker gave the perfect answer, which was, he's my friend. Of course, I'm going to stick with him. And then he looked at Warnock and said, I, you know, you're being ridiculous you, to say you won't stick with the guy you voted with 96% of the time. That was a good answer. The rest of them were, were barely literate, but that cleared the bar. Right, right. But that answer in that moment was, was a good answer. And I will say for, for Raphael Warnock, who needs 
to get very robust black turnout in Georgia if he wants to, to win this thing outright. I think he's still a little bit ahead, but Georgia's a funny state. We remember what happened in 2020. You got to win 50 percent plus one. Right. Or you have a runoff. Or you have a runoff. And for them, the, the difference between you know what they need to get to, to put this thing to bed on November 8th is they needed to have very robust black turnout. And that will be the question of the night that night. If they get very robust black turnout, there's also a question, of course, of what of what percentage of that black turnout will go for Herschel Walker, also an African-American candidate. But if they get robust turnout, black turnout that night, they think that they can get it done on November 8th. If they don't, we're back in run it. We're back in a runoff land again. And in an off year election, you know, a midterm election with no the top of the ticket, no Donald Trump in Georgia, a state that is showing how Republican it still is by by giving Brian Kemp a double digit lead over Stacey Abrams. It's a very worrying prospect. The notion of a one on one between Warnock and Walker in a runoff election where where turnout will will plummet. And that could be it, too. You know, everybody now is focused on these three races, two we've talked about one in Pennsylvania, one in Georgia, and the other in Nevada, where go to another pair of capitals, uh, not the narrative, not expectations game, but capital C conventional, capital W wisdom in the right. political class is that Catherine Cortez Masto is going to lose in, in Nevada. Fetterman's going to win in Pennsylvania, and it's all going to come down to Georgia. And we might not know the answer on the 9th of November 8th. We might have to wait for the runoff for that. So hold your breath. Right. That's terrifying. I, I don't think I'm emotionally like like uh, strong enough to withstand another one of these fucking runoffs. But think about this, Molly. What I'm now focused on, because I'm, you know, a freak, is the wild card scenarios, right? Where Evan McMuffin, aka McMullen. Don't call him that. He's my buddy. I, 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 I like I McMuffins. Like I, I like the Egg McMuffin. I'm a I big fan of the Egg McMuffin. So, but okay. yes, I like him though. And he's a delight. Yes, continue. He is a delightful, he's a delightful man. And he knows I'm kidding when I say that. Because again, McMuffin is not exactly an invective. I like that. I mean, a nice little breakfast sandwich. Who doesn't like that? Cheese, eggs, you know. But yet another Trump nickname that has stuck. Continue, yes. But he might win. Yeah, he might win. He could, and, and you know, the whole thing could get be, could be turned on. You know, there's talk about there's there's now some indications and two of the smartest Democratic strategists I know who've been paying attention to this for months really think that Chuck Grassley could lose in Iowa. So, wow. you know, that would be we, you so know, insane. Right. I mean, you know, things, you know, weird shit happens in midterm elections and people you don't expect to be vulnerable turn out to be more vulnerable than you thought. And and maybe that will alleviate all of your anxiety and 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 the need for all that out of him. Yeah, I'm sure that'll do it. Because <laughs> I'm very relaxed otherwise. So let's talk about this Chris DeSantis debate. I don't even want to talk about it because I'm like so, I just think Florida is absolutely out of reach for Democrats. But some interesting stuff happened during that debate. I'm with you on this, right? Ron DeSantis is going to win that, that race. Yeah, and so I, I, I just don't like spend that much time focused on things that, that, that are out of reach at this point in the election cycle. Just completely, yes, irrelevant. But I did think it was interesting when Chris said to DeSantis, can you promise that you're going to serve out your term? Charlie Crist is a, in those moments, he's a very practiced politician. And he's good. He knows how to do these. He's been in a lot of big debates before. And I thought in that moment, for the debate moment that's going to get replayed over and over, he knew how to execute on that. And I, and he, it was, he looked strong. He prosecuted it well. And DeSantis couldn't have looked worse. He looked like a deer in the headlights. And I actually think from that standpoint, <laughs> he, he both, he didn't answer. He looked like, you know, he looked 
uh, shifty. He looked uncomfortable. And then he tried to turn it by robotically reading out some line about, <laughs> you know, pastures and dogs. I don't even know what the fuck that was. But it, it, it raised a question, which I think it's funny. There's a fair number of people in the Republican world who will watch that and say, they already think DeSantis is running for president, so that's not going to be news to them that he wouldn't answer. But they will look at the way he handled it and wonder, maybe he doesn't have quite the candidate skills that we thought he had, and that that will that debate will not have done him any good in Republican circles who are, you know, looking around for who is the person if it's not Trump, who's the person? And that was not a Trumpy performance by DeSantis. That was a, a nervous, uncertain, and then robotic and badly executed performance. And so, you know, all, for all of those people in the GOP sweepstakes business, that's the thing that I'll tell you. Who is smiling watching that debate? Carrie Donald Lake. Trump. Oh, Carrie Lake. Oh, Carrie Lake. Christy Nome. Anybody who's thinking about running in the Republican primary in 2024, who's not Donald Trump, Donald Trump thinks thinks DeSantis is a clown and thinks he would crush him anyway. He doesn't really care. I mean, his attitude is, you know, if I'm running, I'm going to win. And, and right. he thinks he thinks DeSantis is a, a little man with no talent and who was made by Donald Trump. It's those other people. It's the Kerry Lakes and Christy Gnomes, Mike Pompeo's and, and others who want to run, Tom Cotton's who want to run who are watching DeSantis to see how good is this guy really? He's good at giving a press conference. He's good at giving, you know, standing up and, and in their view, he's good at standing up and, and invoking cultural issues and yakking. But is he good in when he's actually has to go toe to toe with somebody in a real political scrap? That was not a performance that will, that did, that, that made people think more of DeSantis. And in fact, for all those other people, they're like, yeah, I could take this guy. Yeah. It's possible. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. It goes by so fast. Is that why they call it fast politics? John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Kamala Harris is the Vice President of the United States. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be with you. You're in New Mexico. Yes, I'm here at the university in Albuquerque. So I was curious, New Mexico is a sort of abortion island in an otherwise desert. And I know that they're building more clinics. They're building them on the borders of the state. And I was wondering what you're seeing and more importantly, what you're thinking about this. Well, one of the things I'm seeing 
thing being here in New Mexico is it is a vivid illustration of the importance of who is in elected office. There's a governor here, Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is holding the line on so many of these issues. And since the Dobbs decision did an unthinkable thing, which is to take a constitutional right that had been recognized from the people of America, from the women of America, one of the things they did is they pushed it to the states. And so what I'm seeing in New Mexico, to your point, is state leadership and the governor and others who are saying we're going to make sure that our laws not only protect individual rights and privacy and freedom, but also ensure that we do, which is what they're doing, um, take care of our neighbors. And isn't that at the essence of it all when you, when you want to live a good life? It's about taking care of yourself and your neighbors. And they're certainly doing that in New Mexico. So it seems to me that the stakes are very high. And I'm curious, you were a senator, you are now the vice president. I'm curious to know, do you think personally that democracy can survive a second Trump term? Let me just say this. Right. Here's how I sincerely think about it all. Democracy, there's a duality to it. On the one hand, a democracy, when it is intact, is very strong. There's a strength about democracy in terms of what it does to protect individual rights and freedoms and, and to enforce civil rights and human rights and, and, and justice. Right? When a democracy is intact, it is very strong in that way in terms of what it does to protect the rights of its people. On the other hand, and here is the duality, democracy is also extremely fragile. It will only be as strong as the willingness of its people to fight for it. It is a function of the willingness of the people to fight for it. And so when you ask me about Trump, the, the real answer is that I believe in the strength of the American people and the willingness and the desire of the American people to fight for their democracy and make sure that we don't have a situation where there's a further erosion of rights, but in fact that there will be a, a picking up of the movements that have been about not only preserving rights, but expanding rights. So that's how I feel. I feel that the people have the power, and I do believe that in our heart as a nation, in the heart of the people, there is a love of our country and, by extension, a love of the principles upon which our country was founded, which include the principles of freedom and liberty and equality and justice, which are all the attributes of a democracy. But we have these 300-plus election deniers running this midterm, and I'm wondering what your feeling is on what we can do as Americans and also what um, Biden can do to sort of protect and you and you too can do to protect our what has happened in our democracy? Well, let's start with making sure that in these midterms, everyone gets out to vote. Because, for example, again, here I'm here in New Mexico. Michelle Lujan Grisham is up for election. Make sure you vote for her for re-election because she is standing up for people's rights. She's not an election denier. You have people running for office in states around the country for governor. There are 11 people running for secretary of state around the country who are election deniers. Go and vote and make the statement that you want people who actually uphold the truth and uphold the law and protect freedoms. And I, I do believe that that is part of the power that we have right now with an election just around the corner. In addition, look, if, if we gain two more seats in the United States Senate, 
Hold on to the numbers and gain two more seats in the United States Senate. Our President Joe Biden has said he will not let the filibuster get in the way of signing into law the Women's Health Protection Act, which would essentially reinstate the protections of Roe v. Wade. Again, elections matter. If we gain two more Senate seats in this upcoming election, we can undo these laws that have been proposed and passed that would criminalize health care providers for providing reproductive health care, that punish women for exercising the right to make decisions about their own body instead of their government telling them what to do. And the president has said if we elect two more senators and therefore have the numbers, he will be able to sign into law the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which is about reinstating protections around people's right to access the poll and be able to to issue their voice through their vote about what they want from their government. So these are very specific things that can happen. But again, to your point about the importance of democracy, and I will say that the fragility of democracy, it will only be as strong as our willingness as the people of this country, as Americans, to fight for it. And one of the ways we do that is by voting. Are you surprised? I mean, I never thought I would see Roe overturned in my lifetime. I didn't either, to be honest with you, but it has happened. There's a saying from Coretta Scott King, which I paraphrase all the time, and I'm going to do it now. She famously said, the fight for civil rights, which is the fight for equality and justice and freedom, must be fought and won with each generation. And I think there were two points she was making. One, and this is your point, it is the very nature of it all that whatever gains we make, they will not be permanent. We cannot assume they will be permanent because the second point is, given that it's not the nature of it to be permanent unless, and here's the second point, We fight and we are vigilant to maintain them. We can never sit back and just assume that these rights that we have gained will be forever intact if we are not willing every day to remain vigilant in ensuring that they are attacked. I mean, look at what happened in the Dobbs decision. In addition to a woman being allowed to make decisions about her own body and not her government, Clarence Thomas said the quiet part out loud. They're looking at, and at risk could be right to contraception, which has been a right that was long settled. He said right to to marry the person you love, same-sex marriage. And when I was attorney general, I fought to ensure that people around our country could marry the person they love and we could undo those laws that prohibited it. And now Clarence Thomas said the quiet part out loud, which that might be at risk. So here's the bottom line. Just know that we cannot take anything for granted. We have to participate in our country. Our country will only be as strong as our willingness to do that. And I will tell you, I travel around the world, and as vice president, I have met 100 world leaders, in person or by phone, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors, kings. One of the things we can do as the United States of America is walk in those rooms and talk about the importance of the strength of democracy. And then we can talk about rule of law, human rights, civil rights, and we can talk about why that should be the gold standard for the world. But here's the deal. As a role model of a democracy, and as a role model for any one of us, we know when you're a role model, it means people watch what you do to see if it matches up to what you say. People around the world are watching what's happening in our country. And my fear is that autocrats and dictators can point to what's happening right now and say to their people, you want to talk about why 
I should give you rights while your rights should be recognized. You want to point to America as an example, well, look at what's happening in America, which means that things that are happening now in our country have the very real possibility of affecting people around the world. And so I do believe I know who we are as a people, and I do believe that we are willing to fight out of love of our country, for our country and its principles. And I would say to everyone, listen, your standard can't be, oh, this is awful, I give up, I'm not participating. Because that means you don't understand the nature of it. The nature of it is it will be awful if you don't participate. <laughs> you have to. It's how it's how we it's how we do what we do. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really quite grateful and just really appreciative. Well, I'm glad to be with you. It's good to have this conversation. And thanks for your voice. These are difficult conversations, but they're so important. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Talk to you later. Andrew Ross Sorkin is a New York Times columnist and co-anchor of Squawk Box. Welcome to Fast Politics, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thank you for having me. Very excited. How excited are you? Very excited. (laughs) Let's talk about inflation. I feel like it is the number one. Every political article centers on this question of inflation. I still don't understand what is Republicans' grand plan? I mean, what can a political party do with inflation. Oh goodness. Well that's a that's a, a heady question. What can a political party do? The answer is probably very little. The truth is I think you can probably do some stuff around the margins and that's probably the best you're going to do. I think that the governor if you will of the inflation story is going to ultimately be the Federal Reserve. Of course, you know, by the way, the Federal Reserve chair, I know we say they're independent actors and and I would argue to some degree they are, but they are appointed by politicians. So, you know, I remember during the Obama administration, people would say, you know, if the economy was going great. They wouldn't give Obama credit. They'd say, oh, it's Ben Bernanke. Well, you know, Ben Bernanke wouldn't have had that role in, unless, you know, Obama kept him in that seat. So it's all a little complicated. On the, on the, the, I think the question you're talking about, the biggest thing that you could actually do is when you look at inflation today, there was all the supply chain stuff we saw over the last two years as a function of the pandemic. But the biggest, most insidious element of it is actually wage inflation. And it's sort of a very almost like an oxymoron or almost perverse to talk about because right. for so long we wanted higher wages. And guess what? We're now getting them. Higher wages help working people, but they also drive inflation is what you're saying. Higher wages help working people, but they drive inflation. So if therefore everything else costs more than your actual wages are going up, you know, it looks good on paper. But in reality, when you show up at the store, it's not really working for you. And that's where we are. So, okay, what could you do? You could actually and this is the perverse part of it you could lower wages, right? Or I don't know if you can, at this point, I don't think we're going backwards. It's not like wages are going to go down per se, but arguably they're not going to go continue to go up, right? I mean, that's what's the reality of what's going to happen. What that really means is you're going to start to see unemployment go up. And so there's a sort of political perversion of it because here we are, you know, the administration says, I, I, we want to get inflation down. Well, to get inflation down, you want employment to go up. So which headline sounds worse, right? I mean, that's that's sort of, it's not what, which headline sounds worse, it's what is actually worse. You could argue inflation is actually worse, but tell that to the people who don't have jobs. So what happens now 
I mean, we're going to have a midterm. It seems we don't really know how it's going to go. There certainly is a lot of posturing. I mean, if you were the chair of the Fed, would you keep raising interest rates? I mean, what would you do? This is a very strange moment because there's a credibility issue for the Federal Reserve, which actually does matter. And right now, the Federal Reserve, I think, is on thin ice with the investment community. And you could say, well, why does the investment community really matter? Why should we be listening to investors, the bond you know, vigilantes? Take a look at what just happened across the pond. It's actually a, a natural experiment. We're seeing it in real time, which is in the UK, the bondholders, the investors actually effectively said, we don't like your politics. We don't like what you're doing here. Like, this isn't going to work. And guess what? They won. And so I think that you have to be a little bit aware of, of that element, which is that the bond sort of investor class in a very strange way has a remarkable grip over the United States. By the way, if you think about who owns some of those bonds, it's not just investors, it's governments, it's it's China, it's countries. I mean, so that's why this is also interconnected. Right. I mean, what happened in the UK, you know, where the markets cratered was, I think, a real kind of, I mean, it's meant to sort of be a wake-up call to that could happen here, right? I hope it doesn't happen here. But in the UK, if I get my numbers right, they're running at like 98% of GDP in terms of what they're paying. I think we're over that. We're in like the hundred, we're maybe at 120% right now of GDP. That's a problem. And it's a problem because at some point, there's going to be a lack of confidence. At some point, somebody's going to say, you know what, these people aren't good for the money. And it's not that, by the way, that the government's going to be able to turn around and pay off all the debt at one time. That's never going to happen. That's not the issue. It's that there's a path to pay it off, that there's a, that there's a path that people believe in. Again, it's about confidence. And so, yes, if people look at whatever we're doing, if we continue to spend money the way we're spending money, if we continue to have the economic problems we're continuing to have, at some point, someone's going to say this doesn't work anymore. Is this like the death of modern monetary theory? I never really understood MMT to begin with. Well, that's good because neither did I. I'm kind of the <laughs> wrong person to ask. I didn't understand that theory. I didn't really think it was. I mean, I guess it was a theory. It was theoretical and that was about all it was. But I mean, it definitely shows. I mean, some of why we're in this inflation is because of Trumponomics, right? Keep rates low while the markets are doing well to pump up the stock market. I mean, there's a number of reasons we're here and you could say that the stimulus, I mean, there are many factors, but all of them include printing more money. We have been printing money and living beyond our means for basically mo most of my lifetime. I'm 45 years old. And yeah. so, you know, we could blame Trumponomics, you could blame Obamanomics, you can blame Bushonomics, you can blame yeah. Reaganomics. You can go pretty far back to a point where we sort of became disconnected with the reality that was on the ground of what our actual economy was, and we've been juicing it ever since. So does this mean that we will, I mean, are we headed towards a 2008 kind of that sort of, I mean, bleak kind of every day, like, you know, there would be a sort of sense like maybe the banks won't have money. I mean, do you think we're heading towards that? I'm less inclined to think that that's the case and more inclined to think that, look, I, to me, I think this goes one of two ways. Either the world sort of gets its act together. We get some real political leadership, which is sort of hard to believe. I don't really know what would, would make that actually happen. But if it were to happen, I think this could be a two or three year kind of situation. And, you know, David Solomon, who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs, often tells the story of how, you know, basically since I 
basically since like 1981, 1982, over the last, call it, uh, 40 plus years, you know, the stock market, the economy, everything has been sort of up and to the right. There have been these moments, these blips that have lasted 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, where if you held your breath or you closed your eyes and then you opened your eyes up two years later, like things were better. The question is whether that's going to happen in this instance or whether it's going to look a lot more like what happened between 1970 and 1982, which is to say that if you had a dollar in the stock market, you did not have a dollar in 1980. You had less. You did. And I think we forget that. And I think that is, I mean, if you want to be a a worrier, that's the thing to worry about. And, oh, good. And, and, and people like Larry Summers has talked about two things, actually. And by the way, he's been right about at least one part of it. We'll see whether he's right about the second part. The first part is he's been arguing, obviously, that inflation is, is runaway and you have to take control of it. And he would argue for higher uh, higher rates. Interest the rates, second yeah. part is that he has been speculating more recently about this idea of secular stagnation and that, you, and that, that we get into this sort of stagnation period. And that, to me, is also a pretty scary Period. Yeah, I was about to ask you about stagnation. We stagflation. Stagflation, I should say. It's not that well. Well, stagnation is a form of stagflation. Yes. Will you explain to our listeners what stagflation is and why it's so fucking bad? I'm now reading from Good. the Oxford <laughs> Language Dictionary. Stagflation. Excellent. Excellent. Persistent high inflation, right? Combined with high unemployment and stagnant demand in a country's economy. Now, just to put that in context, it is possible for inflation in this case to come down, but to still be higher than you'd want on a relative basis to where you at the same time have high unemployment or not even high unemployment, but just more unemployment. And you have an economy that is not growing. Right. Right now in the States, we have high inflation, but we have very good job numbers. Bingo. Right now, and that's why we all debate, are we in a recession? Is, what do you, how do you describe a recession? What's the technical term? This or that. That's why everyone looks at now and says, are we in a, it feels like a recession. It looks like a recession, but is it a recession? Well, it may not be because we're, we have these sort of unique uh, data points around employment for the most part that feel different. So people say maybe we're not in a recession. However, all that could shift. We'll see. We won't know if we're in a recession until we're already in it. Well, look, technically... We're not in a recession until what's the name of the group? The National Bureau of Economic Research will define the recession. They are the sort of arbiters of what is an actual recession. And you, and they won't you know, usually show their hand for a while. And it'll be interesting to see how they describe it when they do. Right. And we won't know. But the larger question, I think, is if you were Democrats, we don't know how this is going to play out. But what would you do if you were President Biden to sort of figure out a way to stop inflation. I mean, there's just not so much a president can do, right? Well, you could deal with this third rail issue known as immigration. That actually is something you could do. Because that would create more labor? Create more labor, exactly. And that would probably put pressure on the wages increasing. Wages? Absolutely. I mean, right. you know, that that would be something that you could deal with. You could deal with certain tariffs that might take some pressure off, at least in the short term. As I said, there are things that can be done. But again, it's, I think it's all it's all for the most part on the margins. It depends sort of how, how big you go. We saw what happened in the UK. You can't sort of decide you're going with like a Thatcher like approach or a Reagan like approach and lowering taxes. That's just, that actually just right. creates more demand. Inflation, because it exactly more money goes into the economy. So now we tend to think, at least yeah. I, I'm not going to 
try to make you say something partisan, which is one of my favorite things to do to people on this podcast. I tend to think of Republicans as being when Trump was when he was in office, pretty much the only thing he passed was an enormous tax cut for wealthy people, which was what ended Liz Tuss's brief prime ministership. We're seeing that that is really not a thing that the markets like. I think what the markets don't like, and I think we should be clear about this, is the markets don't like when governments put together budget proposals, whether it's how you're taxing people at what level or this. It's not not they don't want you to tax people higher or lower. That's not what they like. They just want to know that the thing works, meaning that there's going to be enough revenue coming in to pay for the costs. That's That's the issue. In some cases, as we all saw, actually, during the Trump administration early on, the market actually very much liked lower taxes. The market didn't freak out. In fact, the market rewarded yeah. that. I want to like get into this idea of currency because all of these economies are interconnected. And while we have problematic inflation, 8 9%, there are a lot of countries around the world that have much larger inflation. Life is relative. I mean, that's the other, I mean, but it's very hard to tell somebody, especially somebody who lives in the United States that, oh, you know, we suck worse or or we suck less. Less, yeah. We suck less. I I remember having, uh, doing an interview with Barney Frank and he said, you can never, you can never make, put a bumper sticker that says, you know, I suck less, vote for me. It's just, it does, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right. And so, yes, if you're a factual human being, you look around and you say, actually, we're doing a lot better than everybody else. That's great. And then people say, well, but, you know, I don't see it. So what are you talking about? Why is it much worse? I mean, UK, Brexit, they sanctioned themselves. They made it much harder to trade. But what about other countries? Why is it so much worse in other countries? Well, let's be honest. The, this, the situation in Ukraine is having a real impact on energy costs in Europe. And that's a big, big issue. I think the slowdown in China in terms of what that economy has experienced is real. Their COVID policy, which has basically restricted so many people, has changed the dynamic of that economy, hopefully not forever, but at least temporarily. So there's a lot of extraneous things that are happening here. Plus, I think going into this crisis or into this pandemic, the U.S. was actually in a very strong place. So we had a lot. We were falling from a different position. Right. As opposed to other countries. So now I mean, you can't fall off the floor. Right. That's sort of the issue. Right. Do you think now you do you think inflation will drive a lot of the vote? It's hard to know because we talk about inflation. It's talked about, obviously, on television every day. It's in the headlines all the time. And you feel it if you go to ShopRite. Right. Like you see it in the aisle. The good news in some ways is, you know, for a long time, I used to say that you go to a gas station. It was like there was like a billboard up there on every, on every, you know, on the highway. It was like this, you could see the inflation just running away. That's come down. So I think that billboard's a little bit less taking up mind share. I don't know. I mean, people always vote with their wallet. And the question is, you know, what are they actually feeling and seeing? And then what are people telling them to feel and see? Interestingly, I think during the Obama administration for a very long time, you know, the economy is actually doing much better uh, than people seem to believe it was. So that's the other component of it. It's like, it's not just what you actually feel, it's what you like think you feel. Right. And that is ultimately a big Democratic messaging problem, right? Oh, I think it's a, for the, for the Democrats, it's a huge messaging problem. If you look at polling, people who are polled will say Democrats are better on this, this and this, and Republicans are better on the economy. Though we, if you look back on all these different presidents, you've seen that Republicans tend to increase the debt. 
and Democrats tend to be, you know, a little bit more conservative, not always, but with the debt. Wouldn't that run contrary? It's funny. I, I Look, I've seen the same numbers you have. And over the last 40 years, if you were to look at most Republican presidencies versus Democratic presidencies, the truth is that the economy and the question is, are you measuring the economy, are you measuring the stock market? But for the most part, has done better under Democrats. That has been the truth of the matter. But at the same time, there's, I think there's other issues at play. Some of it's about regulation in certain instances. And then I think you're starting to see what happened. I mean, I think this last round of stimulus, and I'm not talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, though I'm sure people could debate that. But I think that people look at sort of how the pandemic played out and how much of that money came in to effect and frankly, how much of it was, was misspent. And, and that creates a sort of sense of frustration. By the way, true of what happened under the Trump administration, also true of what happened under the Biden administration. The only distinction that you, you could make, and, and maybe you're going to think I'm sounding sympathetic to the Trump administration in this instance, is in the beginning, nobody knew what was actually happening. And, to, and nobody knew how long this was going on. You know, later on, we had a better sense of it, and we still kept spending that money. And I think there's there's a there's a fair debate at least to be had about all of that. Andrew Ross Sorkin, so interesting. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to talk about this sort of micro macro. Thank you for having me. I just want to talk more about Kanye. <laughs> and now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fast. Jesse Cannon. Oh, that Fetterman debate. Dr. Oz, he really um I feel like he said a saying we'll be hearing for years to come. Dr. Oz believes abortion should be between a woman, her doctors, and local politicians. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. <laughs> Mr. States rights. You know those memes uh, like where it's like, aren't you forgetting to ask somebody? You're local. <laughs> Like, this is going to be a thing people make fun of for years to come. No one better on your body than a local Republican elected. You know what I keep thinking? Remember when everybody was saying his campaign staffers must hate him? <laughs> I really feel like every time he showed himself in public, he showed that it's probably him making these bad decisions and they're just not able to save him from it because this guy fucks up every time he's on the camera. I would just say I don't I don't want local Republican politicians deciding what happens in my uterus. So, sounds like a, a wise, wise thing to want. Uh, and I think for that local Republican politician, Dr. Oz has our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. 
Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.